Father, thank you for this day and for this time that we have together now. And bless us, I pray, as we open your word, help us to hear that word and to apply it in our lives, so that in all that we think, in all that we say, and in all that we do, we might glorify the name of Jesus Christ, for whose sake we ask it. Amen. Amen. I want to read, if you've got the notes with you, this, we're, we're two-sided this week. Um, these, one side, uh, you can tell the difference because uh, it has the word Catholic in capital letters uh, underneath, and the other side has apostolic in capital letters. We're going to start with the side that has Catholic um, in capital letters, and I'm going to read to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 8. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church at Corinth, says this, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there may be many so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died." Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. When I initially prepared this talk on the Catholicity of the Church, I found myself being drawn increasingly to this particular text, which at first sight may seem to be rather irrelevant to the subject. But I felt drawn to it for several reasons. First of all, it's in the New Testament, so no one can argue with that. Um, secondly, it's an issue that probably doesn't move us very much today. I mean, we are unlikely to divide this morning into those who eat meat sacrificed to idols and those who do not uh, over here. This is a controversy which for most of us uh, belongs to the distant past. Now, I am a little cautious on this because I know uh, that there may be some who think that 
the ribs that are served up at Dreamland um, have been offered to the statues at the, the Bryant-Denny Stadium uh, beforehand. Uh, and so perhaps it's not quite as uh, remote from our daily lives as we might think. Um, but I'm assuming that in most cases, uh, this, is not the, this is not so. Uh, but the lesson which it teaches us is one which we can learn and we can apply today uh, in the circumstances that we have. And the advantage of looking at something that is not of immediate concern to most of us uh, is that we can be more objective about it. We don't come with an advanced position that we are determined to defend uh, against all comers. And so I hope we can begin to see both sides of the argument. What the Apostle says to the congregation at Corinth is, first of all, there are no idols. That's the basic theological principle, uh, that uh, the, the sacrificing of meat to idols is, in this sense, a complete waste of time. It is a non-event. I mean, you are holding up, uh, you know, meat to, to things which are not there, which do not really exist. And so whether you eat this meat or don't eat this meat, it really makes no difference at all because uh, the, uh, the idols to which the meat has been sacrificed have no power over this. The meat was created by God. It was given by God uh, for the use uh, of uh, human beings. And we are free to eat this if we wish. That is the basic uh, principle. There are no forbidden foods uh, to the Christian. But not everybody understands this in exactly the same way. Uh, and in the early church, and particularly at the in the church at Corinth, there were two groups of people who, for one reason or for different reasons, might have had problems with this. On the one hand, of course, you had the Jews. Uh, the Jews who uh, had been taught uh, from infancy of the importance of food, uh, the food laws, kosher, uh, and so on, you know, that you should eat certain things and not other things. They were very aware uh, of uh, the, uh, the way in which their diet uh, was part of their beliefs, of their faith. And, of course, for them, uh, the idea of sacrificing uh, meat and so on to an idol uh, could be seen as a form of ritual pollution, that they wouldn't want to go anywhere near this. I mean, it was hard enough to get them to eat with Gentiles anyway, um, you know, without adding this extra complication. So that would be one uh, uh, group of people who would have problems in this way. But the other group, and this is the one that Paul actually brings out in this text, are those who were converted out of paganism, people who had previously been in temples with idols and so on, uh, who are now sort of taken away from this, uh, and uh, in leaving this behind, you see, the, of course, as often happens, uh, because it, it's hard for people to work out in their minds, uh, you know, what they, what they must avoid and what doesn't really matter and so on. They've been involved in this kind of thing before. They just want to get right out of it and not have anything more to do with it. To them, the sight of seeing uh, liberated Christian believers, you might say, going into a pagan temple or going to get meat that had been uh, offered in a pagan temple and eating it would bring back 
unpleasant memories of their previous life and call into question in their own minds uh, whether they were really uh, believers in Christ or not. You see, it might stir up things, stir up things in their minds uh, that were better left uh, untouched. Uh, And for these people, the apostle says, if you've got people like that in your church, people who are likely to be disturbed, people who are likely to be offended by something, even if the something that you are planning to do or want to do is not wrong in itself, you must take this into consideration. Why? Because your knowledge, your knowledge that there are no idols, must be supplemented and indeed conditioned by love. Because love is the application of what you know to be right to the circumstances in which you find yourself. And here we are dealing with people. And dealing with people is always a problem. I mean, there's no such thing as people who have no problems. I mean, if there were, uh, you know, uh, I'd, I wouldn't be here. I'd be with them. You know, cause I, <laughs> I mean, wouldn't you? <laughs> you know, uh, wouldn't it be lovely to have people with no problems? But people do have problems. We all have problems. And these problems are not predictable. These are things that we bring with us from our experience, from our previous life, and so on. Uh, And we uh, have to learn to deal with this and deal with people as we find them and not in the way that we think they should be. And in this way, we have to try to understand different approaches to different subjects. And this is where the whole concept of Catholicity comes in in the life of the church because Catholicity is the inclusion, uh, the, the reaching out, the inclusion of people and ideas and approaches to things uh, which are different within a common structure. The early church had to face this. They had to deal with Jewish people and they had to deal with Gentiles, non-Jewish people. They had to bring these antagonistic groups. Well, antagonistic may be too strong a word, but people who didn't talk to each other, people who came from a completely different background, they had to put them together in a common fellowship. And this was an extremely difficult thing to do. Uh, I mean, it was inevitable that people would rub up against each other uh, in the wrong way. But what we can say, of course, is uh, that the Christian church ever since has carried on this tradition. Because in our church, whether we like it or not, we have people uh, who come at things from different angles. Uh, We have people who think differently. Uh, And dealing with this... Knowing how to, how to cope with this is a challenge, is something that we have to face in order to retain the true Catholicity of our church. I mean, a generation ago, uh, the Anglican world, the Episcopal Church and others as well, uh, were riven by discussions over liturgy. You know, uh, the trouble, of course, uh, was that liturgical experts <coughs> who should be consigned to a particular layer in hell, as far as I'm concerned. Never mind. Um, Liturgical experts uh, decided it was time to change. 
They just didn't ask a lot of people who actually worshipped. Uh, and a lot of people who actually worshipped didn't see the same urgency for change that the liturgical experts saw. So the liturgical experts, of course, came up with their revisions. Uh, they managed to get them through all the committees and, and, and synods and what have you. And suddenly people are landed with uh, a, a new prayer book, which they don't particularly like, uh, because they haven't been brought up on that. Uh, they've got to read it. And it's so irritating. I mean, these people who change the words of hymns, you know, don't they get your goat? I mean, they do me anyway. Uh, they, change, they change the words of hymns because they can't find words to rhyme with you. You know, uh, there, there are lots of words that rhyme with thee, uh, but because they have to take thee out because no one understands what thee means, uh, so you put you in. And what rhymes with you apart from poo? Uh, and um, you can't really use that in a hymn. So, you, you know, this means that uh, you're changing things around, you see. And people get really... I get very irritated with this because I learned the hymns off by heart when I was young. And I'm sorry, I just sing the words I know, whether they're in the book or not. Uh, and so we go. But, you see, the church divides over this. There are some people who say, well, we've got to move with the times, we've got to forget, you know, and blah, 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 and the, and the old services were terrible, and all this, that, and the other. We've got to move with that. And there are other people who say, not on your life, you see. And people who previously had never thought about this, uh, never sort of discussed it, never sort of argued about anything, are at each other's throats because something new has been proposed. Now, is it right or is it wrong? Well, I, you already know what I think, but... Um, trying to be a little bit more objective here, uh, one has to say, well, there's something to be said for both. You know, uh, I mean, uh, some people like organs in church, organ music. Other people like guitars. Um, does it make a real difference as far as worshipping God and his kingdom is concerned? Not really. It is a matter of personal preference. But it's the kind of thing that can split a church. You see, when you get into the ministry, you soon learn that you can preach Buddhism from the pulpit as long as you don't mention the word and nobody stirs, you know. Uh, but change the furniture, introduce a new hymnal, move the flowers, you know, and you've split the congregation. You see, people don't want this because they don't want to be disturbed. Well, some people do. Some people will come up and tell you they've been waiting for years for this to happen. Uh, and other people just write you out of their will, you know, uh, because you've done this. Uh, it, it, it is a, something which is very divisive. But my point is, it is a secondary issue. And this is the problem. You see, like the food which was sacrificed to idols, this is not the central thing. This is not what we're really here for. And it's learning that and disciplining yourself to realize what is primary and what is secondary and to treat what is secondary as secondary and learn uh, from the, how to uh, live together, live in disagreement on these things. Um, uh, you know, this is the challenge that we face. And it's not easy. I'm not pretending for one minute that this is an easy 
thing to do. You see, we like consensus. We like agreement. When I first came to Birmingham, it was shortly after the collapse of the Soviet Union. And I actually lived in the Soviet Union. Uh, You probably didn't know that, but I did uh, at one stage. Uh, And like many people, some of you may have done this as well if you're old enough, you've lived there, uh, there was a certain sense of nostalgia and regret, uh, you know, when the Soviet Union collapsed because uh, a funny place though it was, uh, it did have a certain appeal, um, you know, to those who like living in cages. I mean, it was a... um, (laughs) Uh, it, it, it did have a certain rhythm and, and, uh, and so on about it. Well, I got to the Divinity School, of course, here, and I was sort of you know, wondering about this, uh, and discovered to my delight uh, that a little bit of the Soviet Union had survived. Uh, and this was in our Divinity School. <laughs> because uh, every time we had a faculty meeting, it was just like the Politburo in Moscow. You, know? uh, you would have... Uh, the the policies would be put forward and so on, and everyone would agree, 100%. You know, no dissent of any kind. Uh, We were all agreed. And we used to have, uh, just to maintain the appearance of democracy, we used to have little secret ballots, and everyone, you were were to put yes or no uh, on the thing. And by a miracle, everyone always said yes. And I thought to myself, you know, it was the time when they were talking about throwing Lenin out of his mausoleum in Red Square, and I thought, gosh, he'll have somewhere to go. <laughs> uh, you know, this is amazing. So I determined as myself, I said, what do I do about this? So I decided as a matter of principle to vote no to everything. Um, and so I did. And this caused terrible consternation because every time we had a vote, you see, it would be 15 to 1 or 14 to 1 or 13 to 1 or something like this. And finally, one of my colleagues said to me, I said, you know, I don't understand it. He said, we seem to have lost the consensus. And, uh, you know, he said, why is it? He said, there's always one objector to all these things. So I said to him, I I couldn't be dishonest, and I said to him, I said, well, that's me. And he said, you? And I said, yes. I said, I vote no as on principle. (laughs) I said, do you disagree with everything? I said, no. I said, but, I said, no, I don't. I said, but somebody probably does, and so I vote for them, (laughs) you see. And uh, I feel this is important because there's no such thing as universal consensus. Well, of course, word got back to the authorities and we, funnily enough, gave up voting after that, which is, even the Soviet Union never got to that point. (laughs) But anyhow, um, you know, so Lenin, I'm afraid, has stayed in Moscow. But still, um, this thing, and it's important that we realize this. We have to come to terms with this. Uh, I mean this as a serious point because there is no consensus on everything. There's always going to be somebody who doesn't like something. Now, sometimes it's just one or two cranky people like me, and you can ignore them. Uh, But sometimes it's not. You see, sometimes there'll be a a, a sizable group of people who, for one reason or another, just cannot go along with whatever is being decided. And then you have to decide 
what you're going to do about this. You see, do you tell these people to go away? Uh, do you tell these people uh, that there's no place for them in the church? Or do you try to accommodate them? And if you try to accommodate them, how do you accommodate them? To what extent do you accommodate them? And this is what most church politics ends up being about. You know, uh, some of you may have uh, may follow the events in the Church of England. Um, uh, some of you probably know more about it than I do. Uh, but you may recall a couple of months ago uh, that there was a vote in the General Synod in London uh, about women bishops, whether we we're going to have women bishops, and this vote was lost. Uh, the, the proposal to have women bishops was defeated. And the reason it was defeated was because many years ago when women's ordination was introduced, uh, there was an undertaking that people who were opposed to it would not be coerced. Uh, you wouldn't be forced to accept this if you didn't agree with it. Uh, but over the years, the people who uh, were in, are in favor of it uh, became, have become bolder and more numerous and so on, and they felt that they could push the women bishops thing through the synod uh, ignoring uh, the objections, you see, the, the objectors, I should say, ignoring the minority which was objective, they just overrule them and force them to accept uh, a fait accompli, you might say, at the end. And what happened was uh, the House of Laity, the lay people, not the clergy, hopeless people, not the bishops, even worse, uh, but the lay people uh, who stood up and said, no, this is unfair. We have undertaken to do this. We must honor our commitment. Uh, and so enough lay people objected to this that the vote was lost. Uh, now, the chairman of the House of Laity uh, was one of the people who voted against because he said, uh, you know, this is, he, well, what I've just said, this was unfair. We have to provide for people. We have to keep our promises and so on. What was the result uh, of this. Uh, after the, the, the vote was taken, uh, a group in the House of Laity, which was on the other side, the pro-women bishops, uh, decided that the chairman had to be impeached <laughs> for voting the wrong way. You see, yeah, we're back in the Soviet Union again. You know, it doesn't take long. Um, anyway, he had, he had to be impeached for this, you see. So, uh, he called a special, he got a few friends, made a petition, called a special meeting of the House of Laity, just the House of Laity, to have a vote of no confidence in the chairman. Well, some accountant, and the Church of England, I suppose, I don't know about the Episcopal Church, but the Church of England is full of accountants, um, produced a paper to say this was going to cost about $30,000 just to hold this meeting. So I took it upon myself as, as a well-known peacemaker, of course, in these things, um, to write to the man who was the instigator of all this and said, suggested that if he felt that strongly about it, perhaps he could offer to pay for this, <laughs> you see. Uh, well, I mean, put your money where your mouth is, you see, carry on like this. Uh, he wrote back, I got this was an extraordinary com uh, email, uh, back saying he didn't have any conscience about this, first of all, because he'd prayed about it, you see, uh, he prayed about it. And secondly, because he gave, he tithed and gave 10% of his income to the church already. And I read this and I thought to myself, oh my goodness, I'm not carrying on this conversation. Uh, 
because the next email he'll be telling me he doesn't dope uh, and, uh, you know, um, uh, his, his dead girlfriend did in fact exist. And, I mean, I don't want to get into this, you know, this, this fantasy world that, that this man is living in. Um, so uh, we just sort of stayed away from, the, uh, from that. Uh, but uh, the, the, the result, they had the meeting on Friday, uh, the House of Vedic, and the chairman was vindicated, he, you know, the, he, 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 as, he, he, as he certainly should have been. But the issue, as people kept bringing up, was it's not really what you think about this or that uh, in this particular thing. It's how tolerant are you of people who disagree with you? I mean, if somebody votes again in a way that you don't like, do you then sort of stand up and try to get rid of them? Because that's exactly what was happening, you see, uh, in the life of the church. Now, I'm not an expert on the American Civil War. And I, looking around, I can see that I am a definite minority in that. Um, but I'm going to step out here and, and, and risk uh, this uh, because it's my understanding, and please correct me if I'm wrong, uh, that 150 years ago, one of the war cries of the Union armies uh, was, South Carolina must be destroyed. This was a sort of... General Sherman, I suppose, or somebody like, you know, some wonderful person like that, uh, said this kind of thing. And I've been thinking about that quite a bit recently uh, because it's amazing how history has a way of repeating itself. Because what 150 years ago was a war cry of the Union armies is now a war cry of the Episcopal Church. <laughs> Have you noticed this? Uh, you know, South Carolina must be destroyed. And what General Grant and General Sherman failed to achieve, Mrs. Shorey is going to do, you see, with her henchmen and or henchwomen, I suppose. And goodness knows what else uh, she will uh, drag up in order to do this. And of course, what is, what is absolutely precious is uh, the people who are doing this are doing this in the, in the name of inclusion because they want to include everybody, that they're actually expelling people from the church. Very interesting uh, way of thinking um, that we see going on here. Uh, now, I don't know, again, as I say, I, I speak as an outsider, but my advice to her would be, don't tangle with South Carolina. <laughs> you know, it didn't work last time. They tried, but it's still there. You know, and I worry about this because the attempt to destroy it probably isn't going to work. You know? But anyway, that's not my business, and I haven't said that, and you haven't heard a word um, uh, of this. Uh, but again, it is this question, you see, of how do we deal with people we disagree with? Uh, and uh, on what do we have to take a stand? And this is where you turn the paper over, uh, from being Catholic to being apostolic. Because it is the apostolicity of the church which counterbalances the Catholicity. If the Catholicity is basically to do with inclusion, uh, you know, extending to include all those who are believers in Christ, it, the apostolicity sets the boundaries of faithfulness. Because we who are called uh, in the church are called to preach, teach, and communicate the faith once delivered to the saints, once delivered to the apostles. 
the New Testament is not open-ended. The Old Testament carried on over many centuries. You know, you start with Adam and Eve and you go up to Malachi and so on. It's a long history and it developed over time. But the New Testament was written in a single generation, either by apostles or by people known and associated with the apostles, uh, because it was the last time, the end of the, uh, the days, as, as, as the writer to the Hebrews says, God who at sundry times and in divers manners spake unto our forefathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. I'm sorry, I'm quoting from the King James Bible, which I know you don't understand and has been abolished, but you just have to accept I disagree. Um, anyhow, um, in these last days, this is where we are, you see. So there can be no further revelation. There can be no uh, extended development. People who stand up today and say the Apostle Paul was wrong uh, or, you know, Jesus was a nice man uh, in his time, but we've moved on from there, have got it wrong. Uh, and it is the apostolicity of the church uh, that must keep us on the straight and narrow path in this particular respect. Now, it is extraordinary uh, how uh, people can get things wrong uh, in the most uh, curious way. I mean, at the moment, as you know, uh, we are being uh, divided, uh, not only in the church but in society, uh, over questions of sexuality. In fact, reading some of the things that you read, you would get the impression that sexuality was invented, uh, you know, a year or two ago, uh, and we've now got to get used to this new thing, you know. Now, I could understand if it was something like use of the internet or even nuclear warfare or something like this, uh, that you're unlikely to find direct guidance in the New Testament or anywhere else dealing with this. All right. But sexuality, I have a funny feeling, was around in biblical times. Um, you know, somehow or other, the human race was propagated. And I don't read anywhere about the stork. I, I mean, there may have been storks. I'm sure there were in ancient times, but that's not a major emphasis in the text. You see, the major emphasis in the text is... Uh, that a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Uh, and this is the, build, the fundamental building block of society. This is the way in which the human race is to be propagated. This is what the Christian church has to insist on. The only thing that the Apostle, Apostle Paul just took over everything uh, that he had inherited from his Jewish background, uh, including uh, the prohibition on marrying unbelievers. Uh, he simply said, you know, the, the, you, you must not marry outside the faith because of the importance of the family. But today, you see, we live in a culture uh, where uh, we think we can, we can play around with this. You know, family? Oh, well. Uh, you know, there are many different kinds of family you could possibly have. Uh, and 
you know, why not have two fathers and no mother or two mothers and no father? And, uh, or why bother with a father and mother? Uh, you know, uh, just, just sort of be, be shifted around from this place to that place. I mean, who is to decide these things? Uh, and we play around to our peril. Uh, it was very interesting that in France, which is a very secular country, uh, just recently, you know, the last couple of weeks, there have been massive protests in, in the streets. And, and the, the, the essence of this has been a child has a right to have a mother and a father. Well, actually, and I, I don't want to tell the French this, you know, it's, all children do have a mother and a father. <laughs> You see, it's not just a right, it's an, it's an inevitable necessity. Uh, the right is uh, that this should be respected. The biological reality should be respected either in terms of the biological parents, I mean, in most cases we hope that is the case, or uh, if for some reason uh, or other that is not possible because the parents have died or whatever it is, they've given that child up for adoption, uh, that this principle should be recognized and perpetuated, that it is a basic human right uh, uh, to this because this is how I came into the world, how you came into the world, how every human being comes into the world. There can be no other way. And yet here we are in our supposedly advanced, developed, highly technological society debating this point. Well, all right, I can't tell the politicians what to say, but within the church, we find that people in the church think this is crazy. You know, uh, they, they think that we can move on from this. Uh, just before Christmas, just before Thanksgiving, um, I went to a conference in Chicago, the American Academy of Religion Society of Biblical Literature, and the application form of the registration form has to be seen to be believed. Because on the one hand, of course, they ask your ethnicity, you know. And I'm always puzzled about this because I'm not quite sure, you know, what to put. My Australian friends call all Pacific Islander. Um, <laughs> and, and I would love to do that, you know, but I can't quite make it somehow. Uh, but the really interesting one was the sexuality question. Um, they still managed to put male and female. Um, they, they, those were options. Um, but then there were sort of bisexual, transsexual, non-sexual, hypersexual, you know, all this kind of thing um, going on. But the, but the one that I really liked, I must say, I must confess, was that the, the last one on the thing, questioning. <laughs> and there was a part of me that just wanted to tick questioning. <laughs> To see, to see what kind of starter pack they would send me. <laughs> you know, sort of, dear sir crossed out, dear madam crossed out, dear don't know. Um, you know, we are, we are so delighted that you wrote this. You are questioning. Isn't that wonderful? Uh, you know, we want to support you in your uncertainty. Uh, we, we want to affirm you in your doubt. Um, you know, please do not stop questioning, um, but but state with boldness the importance of this. You see, and uh, 
uh, and all the rest. I couldn't imagine what they would say. Uh, but here we are, you see, in a church where we have got to stand up. Uh, we've got to stand up both within our church and within our world and say, look, this is a load of nonsense. You know, we are being sold something here uh, which is against the way in which God made us. And sooner or later, this is going to come back to hit us. We don't see yet how that is going to happen. You cannot see down the road. You know, I mean, a generation ago, there were people who took fertility drugs, you may remember that, um, and produced thalidomide babies. You know, it was only when the babies were born, deformed and so on, that people realized that the fertility drug uh, was not a good idea, that particular one. You see, it's only when you've experimented with it that you can actually tell and if, but you see, meanwhile, of course, a, genera well, a, a generation of babies was born, or a number of babies were born, who were deformed from birth because of this, you see. Uh, or look at this terrible business about breast implants. You know, people were getting them right, left, and center a few years ago. Uh, and now it turns out, uh, you know, that it wasn't such a good idea after all. I mean... How do you know? I mean, you might say to yourself, well, all right, we don't know these things until they've been tried. Okay. Uh, but learn from experience. Learn from example that if you play around with nature, sooner or later that nature is going to hit back. Why is it going to hit back? Because it's nature. That's what it is. Uh, that's what it was doing there from the beginning. It has survived in the way that it has because of the permanence with which God has created it. Uh, and here we need to say, and we need to say with great firmness, I think, we are not prejudiced against this type of person or that type. Of, it's not a question of this. It's not that we don't want people to uh, you know, get the most out of the life which God has given them. No, it's not that we're trying to discriminate uh, you know, against people who are different from ourselves. No, we do have to work our way through this and we do have to find a way to accommodate them, yes, uh, indeed. But not in a way that denies the faith which was once delivered. Not in a way which denies the basic principles uh, on which our life is built. This is the balance that we have to get, you see. I mean, I have nothing against Muslims, but I do not believe that it's possible for me uh, to practice Islam on the side, you see, uh, and come to church on Sunday and just say to my bishop, well, uh, you know, as long as I don't go to the mosque on Friday, uh, is it all right, you know, that I can read the Quran and practice polygamy and all this kind of thing. Um, you know, as long as I don't sort of make a big display of it, will anyone complain? Because I want to show solidarity, uh, you know, uh, with, with other people. Uh, and the answer to that, of course, has to be no. Uh, you cannot do this. And it's not a question of hating Muslims or anything like that. It's simply a question of being faithful to the vision and to the understanding that we have been given. This is the challenge that we face in our church. You see, on the one hand, uh, to be open and inclusive 
uh, of people who disagree with us on secondary matters, on things which are not of fundamental importance, but on the other hand to stand firm on the issues that are of fundamental importance. And if God did not create the world, and if the human race did not fall into sin, and if Jesus Christ did not come into the world in order to save us from that sin and in order to make us the kind of people that God originally wanted us to be, then what are we doing here? You know, these are, the, these are the building blocks, these are the fundamental principles of the faith that we hold. We cannot let them go. And as it's not a question of being nice or, or not nice to other people, this is an irrelevance. Mm-hmm. We have to say this is where we stand, this is what we believe, uh, we welcome you if you share our beliefs. Uh, we don't really care very much uh, if you disagree on minor things. We do, however, insist uh, that on the basic principles on which we, uh, we take our stand, on the New Testament, uh, on the Bible as a whole, uh, the creeds of the church which are there to point to us to what matters as opposed to what doesn't matter, on these things we cannot compromise. Because if we compromise, we shall be destroyed. Maybe not tomorrow, maybe not next week, but in the long term, we will cease to exist because God will withdraw his favor from us. God only honors those who honor him. And this is what we are called to do. Let us pray together, shall we? Our Father, thank you for this time that we've had together this morning and for the opportunity to speak plainly about some very difficult things. Lord, we ask that no one may be offended by Uh, feeling excluded for reasons which uh, are secondary to our faith and to our understanding. But at the same time that each one of us may be convinced and reaffirmed in our own mind and in our own life of where we must take a stand, of what we have to hold up as essential to being faithful to you in the way we live, uh, in the things that we uh, teach, and in the Uh, people with whom we associate, the things that we give money to, the things that we do in other ways. And so, Lord, bless us, we pray. Help us in this week of Christian unity uh, to be united uh, in our hearts and minds with one another, but above all, to be united uh, to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that we may be truly faithful to him and that we may know and experience his blessing in every aspect of our lives. For his name's sake we ask it. Amen.